Hello. I'm Mr. Red. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady horse. Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. It was 1947. Kathy and Keith Hayes were jubilant when they arrived home with their newborn baby girl, Vicky. There were challenges over those first few days, as there often are, but eventually Vicky settled in and began to feed well and grow. She was a quiet but affectionate baby. She loved to be tickled and held. She was an early walker and soon began wreaking havoc around the house as a terrible two. But her parents doted on her and were patient. So by the time that she'd turned three, Vicky could feed herself with a spoon and drink through a straw. She even helped out with chores around the house. She was particularly fond of looking at herself in the mirror and had a penchant for jigsaw puzzles. Vicky had a natural curiosity and loved to climb trees and play on the backyard swing. Vicky was happy, healthy and normal in every way, except one. Vicky could not speak. She could grunt and scream, she could even laugh, but she could not utter a word. The problem seemed to be neurological. The Hayes consulted with speech experts and began an intensive training regime, rewarding Vicky's hard work and coaching her closely. But despite their best efforts, Vicky just couldn't do it. The most she could achieve was something approximating mama, papa and cup, but only her parents could understand what she was trying to say. Vicky seemed incapable of developing speech. But the Hayes were not surprised, nor even that upset about Vicky's failure to acquire speech, because Vicky was a chimpanzee. Well, as far as we know, there is no talking horse like Mr. Red. Many animals have shown remarkable communication abilities, even learning isolated aspects of human language. As such, no study of the origins of language would be complete without considering animal communication. By looking to our fellow animals, we can more clearly isolate those qualities which are distinct in humans and those which we share. These can then serve as possible pathways back in time via evolutionary development to the roots of language. But of course, we know the end of the story. Humans have symbolic, abstract, recursive language. Animals do not. Perhaps then, any inquiry upon this path is futile because it will only elucidate points of divergence and not the crucial point of divergence which may reveal the secret of language which we have that they don't. However, this somewhat cynical view neglects to consider just how closely related humans are with other species of animals and the vast amount of knowledge we can glean by looking closely at their physiological and psychological lives. And even if we can never know the precise way in which language emerged in humans, 
The better we understand our relationship with animals, the more empathetic we'll be towards their existence and how ours impacts on them. The study of communication in animals demonstrates how similar we are to chimpanzees while remaining so different. It begs the question, what is it that makes us unique? Why is it that we, Homo sapiens, have language, but the pan genus does not? But why stop there? What about dolphins and whales, parrots or even dogs? A border collie named Rico was taught the names of over 200 objects and could fetch them on command from around his home. When presented with a new name, he would infer that this name applied to a novel object that he didn't know, rather than being another name for an object with which he was already familiar. However, Rico's knowledge was limited to the names of physical objects, and he showed no understanding of how the meanings of words might be related. For instance, that dole and ball are both types of toy. Even so, Rico's talents offer insight into general learning mechanisms, even if it's not language specifically. Dolphins and whales both exhibit interesting forms of communication via their many clicks and squeaks and long meandering songs, but we really have no idea what it is that they're communicating. It has been demonstrated that humpback whales use a form of syntax to form long and complex songs which are suggestive of a form of language, but these are typically sung by males during mating season, so their purpose can be inferred. Perhaps more interestingly though, the songs and calls common to a particular clan of whales are quite different to those of whales of the same species but located elsewhere in the ocean. This suggests that localised groups of whales have a common dialect, and therefore we could imply that maybe there's a culture to which they belong. But as complex and interesting as this is, whales and dolphins still fall short of how we use language. Cognitive psychologist Trevor Harley writes, Although there's clearly a great deal that just isn't known about whale and dolphin communication, there's no evidence whatsoever that they're using language in the sense of being able to combine discrete sounds with arbitrary meanings, using grammatical rules in order to be able to generate an infinite number of sentences, or even that they can communicate about anything other than what's in front of their cute little snouts. Whale song may be beautiful and unique, but it is not language as we perceive it. So how about a creature that does seem to speak like we do? The parrot. Does the parrot actually speak using language, or is it just a master of imitation? Before you answer, consider this. Irene Pepperberg is a chemist come animal linguist who, on one day in 1976, went to a pet store and brought a grey parrot. She was interested in the language ability of animals, and so conducted a long-term study using her parrot to investigate the phenomena. She named the parrot Alex for avian learning experiment, and she spent the next 30 years teaching and observing Alex's remarkable abilities. Here's a brief excerpt of Irene talking with Alex. I want banana. Carrot. Good birdie. I want corn. Soft corn. Soft corn. Good parrot. We've got rock corn, that's dried corn, and we've got soft corn too. Cool. It's cold, yes, it's cold. It's from the refrigerator. Go pick up corn. Well, no, I'm not going to pick up the corn you threw down. I recommend taking a look at the video for a full appreciation of Alex's capabilities. Alex could identify shapes and colours and name up to 50 objects. He could communicate preferences and requests. He could even count up to eight and had a concept of zero. Alex was a remarkable bird. 
but he could not hold a conversation. His lexicon was expensive for a bird, but extremely limited for a human. He could not construct an infinite number of discrete phrases. He could not apply his reasoning ability in a more generalised sense. His talents were highly specific, taught, they were well practised, as impressive as they were. Unfortunately, Irene arrived in her lab one morning in 2007 to find Alex had passed away overnight, at the age of 31, which was quite young for a parrot actually. His last words the night before to Irene were, You be good, I love you, see you tomorrow. As touching as this is, Alex said these same words to Irene every night when she left the lab. The challenge when presented with examples such as singing whales and talking parrots is to anthropomorphise their ability to see their humanness. Their abilities are remarkable, of course, but they still fall short of how we communicate. They clearly have complex inner lives, but they're stuck at their level of cognitive ability, and even the smartest parrot will not form words into sentences. It's not really language. But Alex was a special parrot, no doubt. And birds are special creatures, not just because they can fly, but because they can sing. Birdsong is an innate property which bears remarkable similarities to the way in which infant humans learn to speak. And we do have to be careful about using this word innate, but we'll come back to that later. They learn to sing by observation and imitation of their mothers and fellow birds, and they pass through a phase of critical development in which they spontaneously produce short, simple versions of adult song, much in the same way that infant humans learn speech first by babbling. If a baby bird is deprived of exposure to adult birdsong during this critical period of development, it will never learn to sing properly, even if intensive training and exposure to birdsong follows later. This is similar to the way a human child will not be able to communicate properly if exposure is missed during the critical developmental period. And it's also reminiscent of the challenge that we humans have with learning new languages. The faculties which enable language are less unique to humans than we might otherwise realise. And so, if birds are so similar to us, then what about chimps like Vicky? Chimpanzees are our closest genetic relative, yet their speech abilities tail off at about the equivalent of an 18-month-old human child. This is not surprising, as they lack the vocal apparatus to speak as we do, and we'll look more closely at these anatomical structures in the next episode. But it's worth considering the comment of famous primatologist Jane Goodall, who is perhaps the closest observer of chimpanzees in the wild. She said, For chimpanzees, the production of a sound in the absence of the appropriate emotional state seems to be an almost impossible task. Chimps do not just strike up a conversation about the weather, but limited vocal ability may not be a limitation for chimp language as they have demonstrated an amazing ability to communicate via sign language. One example is Washoe a chimpanzee studied during the 1970s and 80s. Washoe was originally destined for the US space program, but her contribution to science through her remarkable ability to sign was arguably even more valuable. Washoe learned over 350 signs and could communicate verbs and nouns and form sentences. This was using the um, ASL, American Sign Language. Remarkably, she had an adopted son who learned many signs purely through observing Washoe's interactions with her keepers. Here's a particularly moving account from one of her keepers, as written by Roger Fort, uh, one of the scientists who studied Washoe. I quote, One of Washoe's caretakers was pregnant and missed work for many weeks after she miscarried. 
People who should be there for her and aren't are often given the cold shoulder. Her way of informing them that she's miffed at them. Washoe greeted Kat, who was the caretaker, in just this way when she finally returned to work with the chimps. Kat made her apologies to Washoe, then decided to tell her the truth, signing, My baby died. Washoe stared at her, then looked down. She finally peered into Kat's eyes again and carefully signed, Cry, touching her cheek and drawing her finger down the path a tear would make on a human. Chimpanzees don't shed tears. Kat later remarked that one sign told her more about Washoe and her mental capabilities than all her longer, grammatically perfect sentences. Another primate famous for his linguistic capabilities was Kanzi, a male bonobo born in 1980. Bonobos are of the pan genus, but are more social and intelligent than chimpanzees, and have particularly expensive communicative repertoires. Kanzi was raised by an adoptive mother in captivity, and showed a remarkable propensity for language, initially just by observation. Sue Savage-Rumba, a psychologist specialising in linguistic studies with bonobos, developed a lexigram system to communicate with the primates. This involved a chart covered with hundreds of small picture symbols which arbitrarily represent items, verbs or feelings. Kanzi and other bonobos were taught these symbols, however Kanzi was by far the star student. Kanzi can comprehend verbal instructions and communicate via lexigram at about the equivalent level of a two and a half year old child, perhaps even better because of the memory involved. It is even thought that his high-pitched vocalisations are distinct articulations of the symbols that he's communicating. There's a link to a video of Kanzi working with Savage Rumba in the show notes. What do we make of this remarkable ability that seems to defy our understanding of the limits of animal language capabilities? For one thing, Kanzi is a big cuddly fellow who has a vague resemblance to us, so it is much easier to anthropomorphise him than our beloved family dog. But of course, dogs also have these remarkable abilities, well, particularly the one to learn instructions and carry out complex tasks. If you've ever watched a sheepdog and farmer working together to herd a flock of sheep, you'll know what I mean. And of course, we can't forget old Rico, the border collie that I mentioned earlier. But Kanzi seems to do more than just fetch or get him behind. He really seems to understand instructions, and his comprehension of the arbitrary lexigram system elevates his capabilities to that which had previously been the sole domain of humans. However, the devil is in the details. Kanzi and indeed the many other primates present in the literature have grasped basic concepts, often motivated by rewards, but there are upper limits to what they can achieve. That they even understand that they are communicating via a language, and what this means is in doubt. Even the most sophisticated animal communicator still cannot come close to the level of articulation and grammar that even a three-year-old child adopts with virtually no training. Don't get me wrong, I'm as impressed by demonstrations of animal talents as anyone, but we must be careful in how much we assign human-level traits to our fellow animals. This is not to say we should disregard that they have inner worlds, feelings and complex social and cognitive systems and capabilities, but they do not have language like us. Stephen Pika reminds us in his book The Language Instinct that it is a common misconception that we evolve from chimps and monkeys, so our language squirrels must be just one step removed from other primates. But that's not how the evolutionary tree works. In fact, it's not a tree with one linear trunk descending from amoeba to us. It has many branches with many genuses of different types that have evolved to suit different environmental challenges. We share a common ancestor with chimpanzees, 
but that ancestor predated Australopithecus and died out many millions of years ago. We are not descendants of the apes, certainly not of any that are still alive today. So to understand the origins of language, it is best not to dwell on the language capabilities of other animals, but to look within to the biological adaptations, both those that we have in common with animals and those which are unique to us. And it's here that we can begin to understand the key points of divergence. And the most important of these is the brain. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.